Good morning. Smile. Thank you. I tell you what, the, between the blue and the brown carpet, whole world of pain, whole world of difference. Um, we're just going to look at stories this morning. And as, uh, as Janet reminded us earlier, we're in this new series of, of Rewind. And we're kind of looking at some stories that may be familiar, may not be that familiar, and just kind of un- unpacking them a little bit. But I kind of thought, what is it that makes a really good story? When you hear a story, what is it that makes a great story? And then what is it that that story can do to us when we hear it? And I don't know about you, it might just be me, but when I hear a really good story, it kind of inspires me a little bit. I love to talk about it. When I go to the cinema, which I love movies and all the rest of it, I love talking about stories. I get with my friends and we talk about the plot. It's really sad, I know, but we do that. And um, and I'm not the only person that does that. I was uh, at a a barbecue last last week at, at, at a friend's house, and as all good barbecues, all the men ended up in the kitchen around the meat, because that's really important, all the men buy the meat. And we just started talking about movies and films and stories, films we wanted to see and what we didn't, you know, um, and, and, and the great films that we've seen and, and the power of those stories. And it kind of reminded me this week when I was looking at it, you know, that the, one of the great things about a great story is that it can bring community. You share in a great story, it's something you pass on to each other. There's a life in that story. And the other thing about a really good story is that it creates an emotional response, creates empathy. It allows you to go into places that you would not normally go into and experience things you would not normally experience and meet and journey with people that that are a million miles away from you. And then by doing that, it can change your view of the world. Dickens, back in the, Charles Dickens, back in the 19th century, uh, he wrote these great works, and they were works of fiction, you know, Great Expectations and, uh, and Oliver Twist and all the rest of it. And there were these, these stories that, that spoke about you know, the, the condition of the society at the time. And they spoke about the workhouses and the kids that were brought up in abject poverty. And he spoke about the tragedy of what it was to be poor in, in London during the, those Victorian eras. And the readers of those books would have been a million miles away socially from what was being said. But the power of those stories, the power of a really good story... Had, had such an impact on many of those readers, kind of middle, you know, middle class and upper class societies at the time, and it opened their eyes to what was going on in the very locale of London, and it triggered something that changed, started to change the nation. A lot of the Reformation Acts that came through in regards to dealing with child poverty and all the rest of it, a lot of that came from these great stories. So stories carry a lot of power behind them. So it's no wonder, it's no surprise, that when you look at the Bible... The huge chunk of the Bible is actually narrative. It's story. The world has this misconception that the Bible is this big book of to-do and not-to-do and all the rest of it, and rules. It's not that. Huge chunks of the Bible are things like poetry and all the rest of it, but huge chunks of it are just story. From Genesis right, you know, right through to the New Testament and the four books of the New Testament are all stories. It's the life of Jesus. The fifth book is the book of Acts. It's the history of the church. So, that, so, so story is really, really important in the Bible. And, and it kind of lends itself to the fact that story does come from God. God created story. And story seems to be one of the ways that God uses to, to communicate some incredible truths to us. Great stories remind us of who we are, what, about our humanity, about how we relate to one another. Great stories then give us an understanding of the universe around us and the God that we worship. And it's no surprise that Jesus was the master storyteller. And you think about Jesus' life, every time Jesus wanted to communicate something that was, was, was radical, that was life-changing, that was profound, he didn't, he didn't just say, this is how to live, he told the story. 
And the power of that story and the, the listeners engaging with that story allowed them to discover for themselves what Jesus was trying to share and teach them. So this morning we're going to look at a story. And this is a great story. There's a, there's a guy called Robert McKee. Some of you that are really geeky may have heard of Robert McKee. But Robert McKee is, is a famous guru, if you like, on screenwriting in Hollywood. Uh, as I said, I like movies, so this is really showing now, isn't it? But he, he, he um, runs a class in Hollywood, and, and so the, 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 the great and the lofty of Hollywood, over many years, have come to his class. And it's all about screenwriting. And what, what he says, when, when he was asked, what is it about a great story? He says this, when you're writing a really good story, you need these things. You need great protagonists, you need people or peoples that the events are happening to, that you really are rooting for, that you're engaged with, that you want to hear their story. So you need great protagonists. You then need a challenge. So it's no good just, you know, saying, we had this great protagonist and he went to the shops and came back again. Dull. There has to be a major, major challenge, an obstacle to overcome. And the more difficult the obstacle, and the less or the least resources that those protagonists have to deal with that that, obstacle, the better. And then what really caps and tops off a fantastic story is that the guys in the story and you as the reader discover something. You learn something you didn't know before. You discovered a truth that was there that you weren't aware of either about yourself or about the situation or about those around you. So that's what a great story is. And we're going to look at a story from Exodus this morning. Um, it's a really short story, but the, the, this, this to me is a great, this encapsulates all of those things. We have people we care for, we have an insurmountable obstacle, we have scant resources, and we're going to discover some truths this morning out of this story. So if you can turn with me to Exodus 17, if you've got your Bibles, and we're going to start at verse 8. Bit of background. And so we're, 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 with, we're with the Jews, we're with the Israelites in the desert. Prior to this, they were in Egypt. They had been in captivity for generations and generations. And then, many of you know the story, God heard their cries, raised up Moses. Moses went to Egypt, and, and through a whole series of events and supernatural occurrences and all the rest of it, uh, the, the, Moses, with the power of God, led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt and led them across into the desert. And they're heading somewhere. But at the moment, they're in the desert, and they're kind of wandering through the desert under the leadership of Moses. And... It's here that they experience this challenge. Because while they're out in the desert, these, these, uh, a million or so people, they are attacked by another nation, another tribe called the Amalekites. So and I'll just read the, the account of this from, from verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the, the Amalekites were winning. So the, the Jews, the Israelites lost ground. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his, Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other. So that his hands remained steady until sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then just down to verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely block out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Just that last verse is where we are this morning. Write it down. This is a story. This is a great story and we're going to remember that. And this is one of those stories... That's incredibly rich and layered. 
So what you're seeing here, and when you read this story, there's a lot more going on in this story than what you're actually just reading on the surface. I don't know if you remember a, a, a few weeks or months ago now, really, when we were doing the Jonah series. And right at the beginning of that series, uh, Leon kind of got the babushka dolls out, you know, those kind of Russian dolls that sit inside one another. And this is one of those stories. So when those stories are actually, when you read it, you think, oh, I've got this, I've got this, it's about this. This is what this story is all about. But then when you dig under the surface, you actually realise, well, it is about this. But kind of, it's also about that as well. There is other stuff to kind of discover in this story. So it starts off really simply. It starts off with an attack. The guys in the desert, and they're attacked by the Amalekites. And what happens here is really different and really interesting, because what happens here is that this isn't the first time that the, the, uh, the Jews have been attacked. Before this time, they were actually attacked when they came out of Egypt. You know the story. They were pursued by Pharaoh. But Moses' response, and God through Moses' response here, is very different. Because what he says, to this attack, to this group of people, you are going to stop and you are going to fight and crackle a lot. Okay, we're going to fight. And it's, that is significant because that is not asked of the Israelites anywhere else up until this point, And we will come back to that because I think there's, there's, we want to dwell on that point in a moment. But just to continue from that, so the Israelites in the desert, and one thing to remember, the reason that they haven't fought before, one of the big reasons, is that they actually can't fight. They have been in captivity in Israel, uh, sorry, in Egypt for many, many, many years, for generation after generation after generation. They have never had the art of war, or for many, many, many years. They don't know what the art of war is all about. They've never had a conflict. They've never had a skirmish. They've always been under the authority of Egypt. So here out in the desert, what Moses is asking to do is something they actually have never done before. And so Moses calls Joshua. First time we hear Joshua name mentioned, which I think is significant. And he says to Joshua, go and grab some guys from out, 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 out of, of the people of Israel and go and face the enemy. Go and fight them and I'll be on this hill over here. Which, if you are Joshua, that is significant. If I was Joshua, hang on a minute, you want me to go and fight these guys with a group of guys that don't know how to fight and thank you so much, you're on a hill. Brilliant. But you, I think what we're seeing here is something that's really profound about Joshua. Because we know that Joshua, many, many years from now, will be the leader of this people. Moses will have gone. And although the command that Moses gave Joshua appears to be really strange, potentially, really absurd in the sense that you're asking me to fight, and I have no experience of that, and I don't have the resources to do this, no matter how absurd it was, there was something in the heart of Joshua that recognised the faithfulness of God. Even here, right early on, we first encounter Joshua, and the first thing we hear Joshua do is fight a battle. His immediate reaction is to obey and to go into that battle. And I kind of, it just struck me when I read this again. I kind of wonder if actually this experience in much, much later life of Joshua informed him in some other moments in his leadership. Because many, many years from now, Joshua is going to be facing an insurmountable object. He's going to be facing Jericho. And he's going to have to take Jericho before he can move any further on. And what's God's command? Get a brass band and march around Jericho. At face value, that seems completely absurd, completely strange, completely counterintuitive. But I kind of wonder what we're seeing here very, very early on. Is Joshua being shaped 
by God. And Joshua, te- uh, God teaching Joshua a lesson about what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit, what it means to be led by God, and what God is capable of doing, even in the, in the most difficult and dire of circumstances. And so the story continues, and Moses goes to the hillside, and it says that when he's on the hillside, he has the staff of God. Now, the staff of God's important. It represents the presence of God, the power of God. It's the staff of God is used, if you read Exodus up to this point, part of the sea, various miracles hitting a rock and water coming out, and all the rest of it. So it's a powerful symbol of, of God's presence and power. But what's, in, what's interesting here, when, whenever Moses' arms are above his head, the battle goes the way of Israel, the way of the Jews. The minute his arms are lowered, then they start to lose ground. The ground that they were winning starts to fall away and they have to backtrack. And the posture of Moses is absolutely critical in this because it's the, the symbolism of, of Moses stood on a hill with the power of God over his head, the, the, the stuff of God over, over his head, his arms raised in the air. The symbolism of that is immense because it's a posture of prayer, submission and of worship. It's acting out something. It's demonstrating physically that the, that the whole idea of, we, of Moses being in prayer and praying for what is happening down on the battlefield. And what's happening on the battlefield is also critical because no matter how hard Joshua and his guys are hacking and slashing and, and all that kind of you know, R-rated stuff that goes on in the middle of a battle, no matter how hard they're, they're fighting down there, their ability to take ground is, has nothing to do with their ability to swing a sword. Their ability to take ground is is directly linked with Moses' ability to keep his arms in the air and to keep himself in a posture of prayer, submission and worship. No matter how hard they worked on that floor, on that battleground, they were never going to take ground unless Moses' arms were in the air in the way that they were. And when you look at this story, when you look at the story of the Amalekites, you cannot talk about this story without talking about prayer. It just drips the whole theme of prayer. And I don't know about you, but whenever someone talks and stands on a platform, and I've been down there, and says, we're now going to talk about prayer, straight away all my inferiority complexes come straight to the surface. I'm lousy at prayer, and now you're going to tell me I need to pray more. You know, I'm not an A star, I'm not Dan, I'm not an A star prayer, no good. I'm a C minus, C average prayer at best. That's as good as I get with my praying. But that actually isn't telling the full story. Because I can tell you this, there are moments in my life when I graduate overnight from a C- minus to an A star, 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 star in my prayer life. I'll give an example of this. I had the privilege, uh, and, and I was really fortunate recently, to, to go out with, with Leon to Southeast Asia, to go on, on, on a ministry trip down there. And many of you know that Southeast Asia is quite a long way away, and you need to go on a plane, which is the worst thing in the world for me, because I absolutely hate flying. And those of you who have flown with me, account for this, I am just not a good person to be on a plane with. I literally stand there, sit there, should I say, well, I'm stand sometimes in panic, that's another story, but sit there gripping the sides of the chair, staring ahead, slightly rocking, which is a bit strange, and absolutely, I just do not do the whole flying thing. And flying back from Singapore, which is a 14-hour flight, for three and a half hours, I experienced the worst turbulence I have ever experienced on a flight. I mean, the worst. It was up, it was down, it was sideways. In fact, it was so bad, I don't know if you experienced this. You know, going to play with people that are experienced flyers? And when the turbulence hit, it said, like, whoa, how cool is this? This plane was deathly silent. <laughs> deathly silent for three and a half hours. Nobody was that confident. Now, if they weren't that confident, you can imagine where, where I was at, by this stage. I'll tell you what, C minus to A star, 
like that. Focused, prayer, intercession, had it all. In fact, this is, Leon will tell you this because he laughed at me in a, an encouraging way. Um, I, got, I had my eye touch thing, iPody touchy thing, whatever it's called. I've got my Bible on that. I'm on a, I get my eye touch out and I'm scooting through for any scripture about burning fuselages hitting the Pacific Ocean and how to stop it happening. I mean, I literally, I was like, oh, that, that's good, I'll use that one. I was absolutely, but I was very focused in my prayer. Very, very focused on prayer. And, and I don't mean to un- un- demean the power of prayer, because I actually know that re- the real reality of prayer is not just asking God for stuff, but the real reality of prayer is connection and relationship and communion with him. But there are instances when we are called to pray differently. And what is that? The time for me is when the stakes are high. I was praying on that plane, pure self-preservation, but the stakes were high for me at that moment, sad as that may seem. Because the stakes were high... My prayer life went from a C minus to an A star like that. And it got me thinking, my prayer life may not be as good as it could be. Is that because my stakes are too low? Do I view what's going on around me with not enough significance and importance? And we heard the story, we heard what's happening in Norway this morning. And I, I, I shared in the nine o'clock, I was, I was looking, literally before I came out this morning, I was kind of flicking through the, the, the news as, as I do. And if the top stories were all about you know, the Norway situation, you know, young pop stars dying at ridiculously young ages, what's going on, on in the Middle East and all the rest of it. This world is completely screwed up and broken. The stakes could not be higher. And yet I am so oblivious to what's going on around me that maybe God says to something like this, you know what, it's not your prayer life that's the problem, it's your priorities. And so, sorry, and so for me... This, for me, when I looked at this whole idea of prayer again, it was that, what, where, where are the stakes the highest for me? I mean, I absolutely, I, I do love this church. I love the people here. I love what God is doing through this place. And we have got some incredibly gifted people in this church that God has called, that has resourced up and is skilled up and all the rest of it for just such a time as this. But we have to remember how high the stakes are. And we cannot just have programs and resources and all the rest. We need to be praying as a body. And this broken world is not on the TV, it's down those stairs. In fact, this broken room's in this room as well. The stakes could not be higher. So when we struggle with prayer, and this is to me, if nobody else in the room, my question to me is, you know, Lee, what, what are my priorities now? And are those priorities and those stakes high enough for me to spend time in prayer and to really kind of seek God on them? John, John Wesley said this, um, if I can find it. John Wesley says, the church's cause is ordinarily more or less successful according as the church's friends are more or less fervent in prayer. So what we physically do in regards to what happens on the coalface, on the shop floor, what happens in the reality of you know, being a church and being successful, and successful in the sense of extending the kingdom of God, is directly related to our ability to remain com- committed and fervent in prayer. There's also another truth, there's another layer to this story that really kind of stuck, struck out to me and I kind of want to focus on, on this a little bit as well. Because when I read this, and I was sharing with somebody this morning actually, this is the thing that really impacted me personally the most. Um, I was chatting to a friend the other day and I kind of said, the last five or six or seven weeks for me haven't been great my, with my walk with God, nothing major, but there's days when you think, oh, okay God I know you're there, I know, I know you're firing in all cylinders everywhere else. Why, why do I not feel that? What, 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 you know, what's causing me to not connect with you the way that I have connected with you before? 
And it was in this passage, in this, this particular thing here, that God hit me like an express train, and, and one phrase was laid on my heart, and it stuck with me ever since. Now, I want to just share that a, a little bit with you. And again, this could be just for me, and if it is, indulge me. I don't think it is, but I'll move away from that. Um, what, what Moses does here is completely new. Until this point, whenever Israel has been attacked or has needed something, God has provided for them. When they escaped from Egypt, when they went into the desert, God provided for them all the way through. They did nothing except complained occasionally and got what they asked for. God does something significantly different here. What, what Moses says, or God says through Moses, is with this group of people, fight. With this particular nation that's attacking you now, you are to fight. And I, got myself, I asked myself, why is that? What is so different about this group of people that forces the Israelites to turn and fight and to engage in something they're actually not equipped to do? Why is it so important that they fight these people? And the reason is, is, is actually in what this tribe and what this nation stands for and what it actually means. I don't know if you remember a few, a few weeks ago, uh, um, again I think Leon was talking um, about how there are certain words in the Bible, certain concepts in the Bible that have a lot more meaning than their face value. So, Babylon. Whenever you hear the word Babylon mentioned in the Bible, yes it's a geographic place, yes it's a place that the Israelites were, were, were held in exile to back, back in the Bronze Age sometime, but the Babylon also means the dominant world culture of the time. So further on in Jewish history, so kind of the New Testament, Babylon was the Roman Empire. And there's an argument today that says Babylon is our Western culture and our consumeristic culture. That's Babylon. Egypt, whenever Egypt is mentioned in the Bible, it's not just a country in North Africa. It's not just a place where the, the Israelites were held in captivity. Egypt stands for, for slavery. It's, it stands for captivity. It's a place to be rescued from. Jerusalem, it's not just a city. Jerusalem is a symbol. It's an image. It's... The, for, for the kingdom of God. So there's this huge amounts of weight behind many of these words. The Amalekites, there is a massive amount of weight behind this word. Because Amalek, who was the king of the Amalekites, was a direct descendant of Esau. And Bible scholars and theologians will tell you that Esau represents the carnal, the flesh, our old selves, the baggage of our old human nature is all contained within that word the Amalekites will derive from, ultimately, from Esau. So what's really interesting with this story to me is that the, the, guy, the, the Jews, the, Israel, the, the, the guys from Israel, are in captivity in Egypt. They're there for generations, and God comes along and rescues them. Sorry, can I have a handheld mic? Just needed to be tightened up. feel better now, thank you. Um, where was I? Oh yeah, so they've come out, so yeah, the, the, the situation is this, they've come out of, um, they, they, they're taken out of captivity in Egypt and they, they, they come to the, to, the Red, to the sea and they're completely trapped at the sea. And at this stage, what God says is, I'll tell you what, paraphrasing him, stand still and watch what I am going to do because I am going to bring you salvation. So their escape from uh, Egypt had nothing to do with them whatsoever all they had to do was to stand still, to accept what the gift of God was giving them and to receive it and to walk through the waters to get to the other side. So their salvation 
was all God's work. But then when they get through to the other side, in this story here, the very first battle they have to fight is against a nation that represents their old selves. A nation that represents the flesh and the carnal. And this is the thing that has really kind of stuck, stuck out for me. Because what, what this is saying is that even once you've been saved, even once you've made it through and God's done all he's got, there is a battle for you to fight and the battle is against your old self. And the old self is a difficult self to beat. And you think I'm kidding, Paul, the great apostle Paul, probably the most significant and spiritually alive person in the New Testament after Jesus said this, why is it, and you know the rest, the stuff that I don't want to do, I do. And the stuff that I really, really want to do, I don't do. Why is that? Have you experienced this or is this just me? Well, you've got into a, a conversation with somebody. Uh, a, a, a friend, a colleague, a wife, a wife, and um, you've, and the conversation starts to get a little heated, a little agitated. There's a, an, an argument, not quite there yet, but it could be, and so the voices get raised a little bit, and you, you carry on, and you're grown ups. You, you can do this. You can have a, a heated discussion, and then suddenly, as if from nowhere, into the back of your brain, pops a comment or a past misdemeanour or something you vowed as a couple you would never say again. Ever, ever. And it appears in the brain. And, and the, the, the conversation goes on and it's there. No, don't say that. Consequences, Armageddon. Do not say that. But you carry on the argument. Gets a little bit more heated. Again, that thought comes back. No, do not say that. Consequences, bad. And then suddenly, as if you've left your body, and are now looking side on at yourself, in slow motion, the very words that you know are the equivalent of taking the pin out of an hand grenade and throwing it in the middle of the conversation, come bleh, tumbling out of your mouth. You knew exactly what the consequences were. You'd known for many, many minutes before what the consequences were. You knew the minute you said it, that implosions and explosions, and whatever the combination of those are, were about to happen in this conversation, yet you still said it. Why is it we do the things that we don't want to do, and the things that we do want to do, we don't do? Max Licardo was a, uh, a great Christian thinker and writer. He came with this very simple phrase, you know, that we can, we can have our souls, our souls saved, but our hearts can remain unchanged. We can experience salvation. We can receive the free gift of what God has given us and of grace. And it can end for many of us there. And this story kind of reminds me of an, of, of an analogy, really, in the sense that you know, when we become Christians, when we accept God, when we receive this gift of grace, it's like physically, talking in medical terms here, imagine you've got a diseased heart and that heart is replaced. It, obviously, you can go for a surgery and you can have a transplant. The diseased heart is replaced and a brand spanking new healthy heart is inserted in your chest. But that isn't the end of the situation. The diseased heart is gone, but you need now to accept this heart. That requires lifestyle change, exercise, diet, the stuff that we take into us to help that heart sit there and do what it's there to do in the first place needs to change. And that's what this story kind of reminded me of when I read it again. Because what I felt God really, I can't, it doesn't happen very often, but it was an express change, 
when I was kind of belly aching and complaining to God a little bit, God said to me, Lee, what are you going to fight for? In your walk with me, in your experience with me, what is it you are willing to put your life on the line for and fight for? I can operate on automatic pilot, potentially, or I can fight for something that's greater and fight for the life that God really intends for me. But it is a fight, it is a battle. It's not just sitting there and accepting it. I have to do things. I have to shine a light into parts of my life that I don't necessarily want to shine a light into. I have to address things in my own experience, in my own history, that I don't necessarily want to spend time doing. I have to mend broken relationships that I hadn't intended to do. There were parts of my life where I've parked things, and I'll come back to that when I'm more mature. And I'll ask the same of you this morning. And I would say that God is asking this of us. What is it worth fighting for this morning? To get on the battlefield, to get into the blood and the guts of the reality of a battle, because they are messy, messy, messy things, and they are hard things, and they take effort. But what are the areas of our life where we know that there's a battle against our old selves, and the baggage that we carry with us? We know we have God with us. We know that God has saved us. But there are so many parts of us that we just that keep dragging us back. Unforgiveness. A conversation you had a million years ago with somebody where you've parked and said, you know what, I don't, you know, I, I've, it's so far away now, I've moved on from that, I can live this Christian life here and not address that. Addiction. Those things that we go back to again and again and again and again and we think we bust it, we think we broke it, we think we've made our way through and then it comes back, whenever it comes back. And God's saying to us, Fight. Fight, 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 fight. Apathy, fight it. Unbelief, fight it. Doubt, fight it. There is a battle that is worth fighting. And it's the most, imba- most important battle, I think, that we have to face as individuals. And it will go on and it will go on. And God, will, as, as it says in the Bible, we, we get changed from glory into glory. It's an evolving thing. But there's a reality here that unless we physically fight and we do something... I'm just trying to think practical things, the, the th- things like the um, freedom in Christ, things like that. To actually go out and physically do something to address those, those areas or go and speak to somebody you've not spoken to. And we say this so much in church, but I think this here tells me something, that this is important. This is room 101 stuff. That when, what God, the gift that God has given us and the future that God has for us is phenomenal, but we've got to fight for it. And we have to be active in it. Finally, one more thing, just talking about what was a great image in here about church and about community. I think it's verse 13 and 14, where, where Moses um, is praying and then Aaron and her sit him on a rock and then his arms are kind of flagging and they stand either side of him and hold, hold, hold his arms and it says until the setting of the sun, a long time. And there were two things that kind of struck out from me on this. And we talk a lot about community in church, but there was something that really kind of, uh, kind of kicked out from me here. Let's talk about Moses. Moses had it all together. Moses was the great man of God. Moses was the leader. Moses has seen God work in miraculous ways. Moses was the man that was called. And yet Moses was willing to accept support and to accept help, to allow people to come alongside him. And I sometimes think in church... 
especially people that are profile or, or, or leadership type guys or people that are key influencers, people look to you as being, you know, you, you've, you've got it all together. We kid ourselves sometimes we've got it all together. And we allow that facade to carry on. And we know that God's brilliant and God's done incredible things. And we know that we're obedient to God and we, we act in faith with, you know, with what God is doing. It's not as if our walk's flawed in any way, but we can still feel dog tired. We can still struggle. We can still feel you know, that we can't put one foot in front of the other, sometimes metaphorically you know, in our, kind of our Christian walk. And so I want to ask people that that impacts this one, just to think about that. If you, you don't have to pretend you've got it all together. It's not saying that God isn't great and God isn't having a massive impact on your life and you're not seeing that God do, is doing great things. God's doing great, God's doing great things here. I won't move. God is doing great. <laughs> Unfortunate position to stand in. Um, God, God's doing great things here. And yet Moses was getting weak and was getting tired. So maybe it's time just to let that veil go. Not kid ourselves, we've got it all together. And allow somebody into that situation to sit you on a rock and to hold your arms and to walk with you. But the other thing that was incredibly critical from this, can I take your mic? Sorry. Okay. The other thing that's incredibly critical in this is actually Aaron and her he only, only kind of get a, like, a, like a passing mention. This is what I find incredible. Aaron and her were so close to Moses, they saw his struggle. They didn't have to be asked. They didn't have to wait to be told by Moses. They saw what was going on. And they actually saw beyond, the, not the facade, but they, they, saw, you know, they, they saw straight away what the, what the issues were. And they were so close to him that they were willing to step up and physically take the burden. And I got, again, I just, I just felt for us, for me, and, and just my relationships with, with this church, with my friends and family and all the rest of it, you know, am I close enough to people? Not everybody, because in a big church that's difficult, but we should be close enough to many people around us to be able to understand and to see when we are flagging, when we are failing, when we are struggling. And then are we willing to get down in the dirt, to hold them, to share that struggle. And I don't just mean, you know, metaphorically, I mean physically get involved. To, to, to get involved in situations that could be difficult, challenging, controversial, hard. I'll be willing to step into those situations. So I think there's a great picture painted here about what it means to be church, what it means to be community. I'm just going to ask Mark just to come up, and we're just going to kind of close. But just the thing that kind of struck me as I went through that, there were three things this morning then that we kind of looked at. Just to leap out of this story. Prayer. Are the, where are the stakes in your life? What are the things that are, that are your priority, that are worth praying for, that will inspire and motivate you to get real with prayer? Most important one, and I would, I, I would implore you to take this with you, what is worth fighting for? What is it worth taking a stock of your life and saying, I am going to fight for that. That part of my life that I know is just holding me back or holding somebody else back. Those things that I parked a million years ago, am I willing to reopen those things again? Because it's a battle that's not yet finished that you need to fight in those areas. And then finally, community. This God-given gift that we have of church. It's an amazing thing. I get emotional every time I think about it. What God has given us here is incredible. Absolutely incredible. We should be close enough to each other to see that. 
when we're failing, when we're falling, we should be there, arms wide, sharing each other's load. And we shouldn't be afraid to accept it. None of us are too big or too spiritual to expect help. None of us. Do you know what? If we nail this, if we nail this and we get this right, then this story from history becomes a story from the present. And the truths that we see here in this story are played out in this place. Stand with me, please, and we'll pray. And then we're going to sing a song, Amazing Grace, which is a story. And we sing these words this morning. It's our story, and hope for many of us, or all of us, it's our story of how God has set us free. But let's just pray, and then we'll, we'll close in worship. Father God, we thank you that you entrust stories to us. And that there is a story that's been played out from the beginning of time and will continue to be played out until you come again. And that's the story of you turning this world upside down. You turn this world the way that it should be. And God, and we are not bit part players in this story. We are key players in this story. You have called us into your great story and you are willing to allow us to be part of it. And so, Father God, I want to pray that we have the guts to be part of that story. And when I say we, I mean I have the guts to be part of that story that you're playing out. That I will raise my expectation level of of how bad this world is, how broken this world is. And I will recognize how high the stakes are. And it will, it will drive me to pray. Not because I feel I have to, but because the stakes are so high. And God, I would ask that those parts of my life and everybody's lives here, that we have just, we need to open the battle lines up again. And those parts of our life that we need to fight for again. God, I pray that you will just, by your Holy Spirit, speak into and shine a light into those areas. And then finally, that we will be known by the love that we show to one another. That where it is possible, we are so close We can see flagging arms and we can reach out and we can get down into that situation and we can just be together. God, we thank you for the truth, the incredible truth in this this story about an ancient battle. God, I pray these, these words will stay with us and the stuff that I've said that's junk, let it go. But the stuff that's really important, God, I want to pray that it finds a heart this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen.